This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Reed Krieger. I'm delighted to have my guest today, David Humphrey, an artist represented by Sikkima Jenkins and Co. in New York City, a critic, a curator, a senior critic at Yale, winner of the Rome Prize, and most recently, the author of Blind Handshake, published by Periscope Publishing. Thank you so much for doing this. So tell me about the process of Blind Handshake. How do you go about structuring this book? I went into the archive of my writing, which includes a column I did for Art Issues in the 90s, occasional catalog essays and pieces for various journals, and basically remixed them, made a, um, a mixtape, curated them in some ways into theme clusters and groupings that hopefully tell, tell some other story, some story that's other than a chronology of my writing. And I did that in order to create a, a relationship with images that was not hierarchical. It didn't give priority to the text. That, that text and image could jostle with each other, could struggle sometimes, could harmonize and even undo each other to some extent. And I wanted to do that because I didn't want to lose sight of the fact that writing for me is an extension of studio practice. That I never write in the disembodied voice of authority, but I write as an artist. Yes. So first of all, let's go back a little bit. Um, let's talk about art issues, because this is a magazine that was a Los Angeles-based publication. How did it come about that you started writing for art issues? Well, I moved to Los Angeles for a year in 1989-1990 uh, where I was showing with Krieger Landau Gallery and doing a little bit of teaching and I had just started doing a little bit of writing here in New York. I'd written something for Meaning Magazine and uh, maybe a piece for Tema Celesta and these were these were exercises in adapting somehow to uh, a request. I almost never write I don't write a word without somebody asking me to write. Yeah. So if somebody's expecting writing, then I, then I do it. And, and so I went to Gary Kornblau, the editor, and said, I'm willing to, to do this. And he was a very adventurous editor and a hands-on editor. So I wrote a couple reviews. He really liked what I did. Wrote an article, did a cover story. And then when I moved back to New York, I returned in some reviews and he said, well, why don't you just do a column? And so I became the, um, the New York Bureau, basically. And he gave me carte blanche. I could do whatever I wanted. And what I ended up doing was a, an essay disguised as three reviews, or rather three reviews curated into a theme essay. It was a little challenge I made for myself. I would try to find shows that connected in a way that uh, made a thought. Can you just talk a little bit about the cover of this book, Blind Handshake, painting itself? Sure. Can you describe the painting? Yes, it's, it's called Plein Air, and there is a woman squatting in the landscape. The landscape is loosely based on a Gauguin painting, uh, except that I've got this modern architecture in it. And she's... And why is the modern architecture in it? it? I want the thing to be placed in a uh, contemporary setting. It's like, a, it's like a sort of an Arcadia that's at the edge of town. Uh, it's like a crafted nature. And so this painter, this woman, is there with her colors, 
and she's using the bare bottom of another woman, although a figure of ambiguous uh, sexuality, as her palette. Yeah. So it's an ass palette. Right. And I guess this... I thought it was I, a man, actually. You thought it was a man. Yeah. yeah, people think different things. It doesn't matter. Is the person... person you know, or it's no. It's a generic person. It's a made-up person. I see. And I like the idea that somehow that this is the blind handshake, the use of the ass as a palette. I mean, that... Um, I guess I like the idea that in this book, various types of relationship are established. Not only the relationship between the writing and the and the um, and the t and the artwork, which in a way is a kind of a blind handshake. The artist makes the work uh, in the studio in anticipation of its being looked at and thought about and encountered by somebody else. Then the author, of course, comes to the work and has a relationship with the work, and the artist is absent. And so the writing, in a way, is the blind handshake. So this was, in some ways, a joke about, about that sort of relationship between, between people. You start at the beginning. First of all, I wanted to say that in the, um, you have two people writing introductions to the piece. One of them is Chris Krause, who I, I mean, I am on the book. Chris Krause, I, I admire very much. And um, she said she calls you the most important critics, or the most important writer, wrote by this peer group since Fairfield Porter. That was quite a nice. Um, well, that's a lovely, generous thing. I'm very happy she wrote that. And I guess I wanted the thing to, I wanted the writing to be framed by my um, practice as an artist. And so there are some images at the beginning and at the end of the book. Um, and they're like bookends. And, and then I would say most of the images are other artists. Uh, they're, they're peers in that they are showing at the same time as I'm showing, but they range in age from emerging artists to established ones, some of them are dead. And then occasionally there's moments in the book where I'll have an artist statement or there'll be a show that I curated and I'll include myself in those too. I often do put my own work into shows that I've curated. And I feel like it's a way of putting cards on the table are saying, I'm just not a disem disembodied curator, I'm an interested party. I care, I care about these themes and you can, you can see how I care because you can look at my work at the same time. But, uh, but, a, but a lot of times the writing would be an occasion to think about something that doesn't have much to do with my work, but I wonder if it could or if it should. And so I would set writing tasks for myself to, um, to stretch, to reach out. The first essay you write is about an incident that took place in 1976 in New York, although you wrote about it in 2000, about the Macy's Parade. And the Bicentennial. It was the Bicentennial celebration, but it was put on by Macy's. Oh, it was the Bicentennial? Yeah. Um, and you talk about this incident that happened um, where you were stuck by the, behind the police barricades. Can you talk about that particular piece? I wrote it for the Stanford Humanities Lab. My friend Jeffrey Schnapp created this thing called the Humanities Lab and their first project, which was massive, involving lots of scholars and, and gathering of images and, and an archive, was called Crowds. And it was about crowds in the 20th century and various ways of thinking about it, theorizing it. As, as part of the project, they asked 
different people, cultural practitioners, to tell a story about an experience with the crowd. And so that was my challenge. I wanted to have a place in that book, but also tell um, of my own experience. And so that was my first year in New York. I moved here as a student, and I was a kid. Right. And, and what was New York like in for me, it was really exciting. And like one of the things I said in the, in the essay is that it was really a dark place. The city was bankrupt, but real estate um, was easy and cheap, to, easy to get and, and, and inexpensive. And so I remember coming through Soho at night and seeing you know, the, the, um, all the factories were shut down, but then there'd be these occasional lights on and you could see in and there would be artists painters working on their work and you'd kind of go to Finelli's bar and there they'd be um, hanging out and there were a handful of galleries and I just thought that was the most exciting thing. It seemed very wide open. Do you think it's similar now? It's no, it's not period. similar at all. In some ways, I just read... Uh, Even though we, we, we're in a period of... Well, I think there's a lot going on. I think it's, it's a great cultural moment. Yes, exactly. exactly. But it's really different. I just read the Arshul Gorky biography and in some ways... The experience of those of that generation, like post-war New York City, I think in some ways was closer to my experience in the 70s than the way New York is now compared to then. Um, it's way more expensive. A young artist has to has to work a lot harder to to pay for their their studio and their time. There's w so much more. There's so much more money. There's so many more galleries. In some ways, that makes a, a turbulence, which is which can be very exciting, but also kind of daunting. But '76 was, in spite of the fact that cars were being torched on the street and stripped, and buildings were burning, uh, was a place to reinvent yourself. Yeah. I felt like it was this uh, island of of freaks and and dreamers. Mm -hmm. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about either your process of picking the artist? Well, I was ho I was hoping that I mean, as I as I was writing, as I was writing these my pieces, um, I would choose shows that were on at the time, and for art issues, I had total carte blanche. I could write about anything, and I ch I specifically tried to avoid the biggest, most talked about shows. I liked um, exercising some independence. I liked writing about work that had never been written about. But the main thing was that I wanted to kind of group shows in an unexpected way to build a coherent thought. And so I would write a, a review that tried to address the, the salient characteristics of the show, but also slyly incline it al along a trajectory that, that, that spelled out a thought. And the thought might be a simple theme like shadows or blindness or something along these lines. Now, when I did the book, I pulverized those triptych structures into separate parts and reorganized them. So maybe one or two of the original whole pieces are here. There's, there's an essay on uh, James Esper, R. Crumb, and Peter Saul. Now, that's exactly as I wrote it. And uh, that was, in some ways, spinning a little story about the grotesque. So it was a chance to read Bakhtin and to, and to think about what is the meaning of the grotesque, the history of it. But then in the book, it sidles up next to Dana Schutz, who I wrote about just a couple years ago, and that was for Art in America. But somehow her 
relationship to Crum and Esber I thought was interesting. And so the book originally had chapters, theme chapters, with funny names like prosthetic selves or low-maintenance pets. And I decided at one point to, to dispense with that and just have one long text that alternated between reviews and then standalone essays. The reviews section is, is kind of noisy. There's a lot of background. Uh, I, painted on, I painted on magazines, which we used as templates to design the book. It was a very interesting process, uh, collaborating with the designer. Tell us, tell us about that. Because it is an unconventional-looking book. I think it's a very, I think it is unconventional. And, and part of it is this design. the way you use types. Well, I, uh, I came to be aware of a designer named Jeff Kaplan. I wrote him a letter out of the blue. I'm, I'm doing a book. It's an anthology of art writing. But we want to organize this thing um, in a sort of novel way that would maybe include elements of magazine, narrative, of um, graphic novel. And in order to destabilize the relationship between image and text. And so he thought that was great. And so he was on board. We paced into this thing through conversation, dialogue. And in some ways, I think the relationship between he and I is echoed in a lot of the themes throughout the book. This was another kind of blind handshake that is a sort of a dance between he and I, between image and text, between artist and writer, and oftentimes thematically within the works about relationships or self and other. Can you talk a little about you? art practice during this period? Well, I write intermittently, and it's added up to kind of an archive. I think this book is maybe half of, half of my writing. I could, do, I could do a volume two very easily. But basically, I'm a hardcore studio rat. I make drawings, painting, sculpture in the studio. And when a writing gig rolls around, and I, and I never write, I don't write a word without somehow the possibility of publishing. It's, it's a pathology, it's an ancient attention deficit issue and I suffer, it's the most painful thing, it's awful. I love having written, I feel very much um, satisfied, but, but I write in the studio and oftentimes what I write about emerges from things I'm thinking about in, in my work. And the studio is, it's a, it's a lather of activity. I have, I have tables that I draw, areas where sculpture are in development, usually I'm working on many paintings at once and so writing rolls into that ecology. I've been doing it since the mid-90s. Really? Okay. Um, I, I started out making sculpture and showed it occasionally. I was in a show at Feature Gallery, uh, and I was in a show at Karen Golden. And then um, a, uh, a guy named Devin, Devin Golden uh, decided to, or asked me if I wanted to do a show with him because my primary dealer, uh, David McKee, didn't, didn't want to show the sculpture. So I had a whole other separate gallery showing sculpture in the 90s. And these are smaller ceramic things. And, and I think it does relate to the writing in the sense that I would f find ceramic figurines and uh, then I would embed them in paper pulp, join them together and embed them in paper pulp. So what I was doing in a way was a kind of collaboration or establishing a relationship with these pre-existing things. So in some ways, it was like writing a, a, an art review of somebody else's work. 
the new thing, the writing, is my piece, but in some ways it, it comes out of a relationship that I've established with these other artworks. So those sculptures, and these sculptures too that you see here, are in some ways collaborations with somebody else's work. So what is I guess the originally, I, I liked the um, the fact that they came at the tail end of a of a life cycle. When I would find them at a flea market, they um, so the life cycle would have begun um, with a manufacturer, somebody that they they would hire somebody, an artist, let's say, um, to design something to be loved, to be wanted, to be consumed like a cute lammy or a little bunny or something, uh, that would also be useful, maybe as a planter. I do like the little the planters or an ashtray even, let's say. Um, so somebody bought it maybe as a gift or because they loved it. And, and so it had this moment um, at the point of purchase of, of sort of being special and new, but, and maybe, maybe being part of somebody's life and then, and then no longer wanted. Now, put out for sale. So that's when I see it and I think, oh, this is, look at this little shiny, happy thing that wants to be loved, you know, but isn't really loved so much, or you know, maybe it was. And now I take it and um, interact with its, with, its, with its wishes and change it and kind of fuck it up in my own way. Are there particular kinds of figurines you're attracted to? Mostly cute ones. Really? I kind of liked the, uh, this image of cute. I also liked high degrees of artifice like stylizations that were very, that were disorienting to me. Like I would say, I thought, oh, somebody somebody did this stylization because they thought it was really funny or beautiful or um, lovable, and I would I would think that's so weird. I don't really understand it. Yeah. And so that helped. I mean, I like that, and I, I do this in my paintings. I'll I, I'm a hunter gatherer, and I use sources, and I fold them into the paintings. And how do you how do you go about that? Do you take do you take elements from the painting? I mean, you, yeah, these are full-out paintings, full and I oftentimes will hunt and gather sources, and then I'll make drawings from the sources. Sometimes I'll make tracings, or I'll uh, maybe even use it projection. Look like the original source, but that was finished. No, but sometimes it's it's there. I, I did a series of paintings in which I copied the paintings of Dwight Eisenhower. There's an essay in the book about that. I just I found these things online, and they were they were really interesting and kind of blank mute things made by Supreme Allied Commander, victor of the, right. of the invasion of Europe, you know, President of the United States. Right. And I, so... I, didn't really, I knew Winston Churchill was a painter. Right? Yeah, he, he um, I think, encouraged Ike to make paintings. Really? Help him relax. Yes. Uh, so Ike painted his whole life. Yeah, decided that he was making paintings that were just pathologically normal. Nothing special about them. He copied, sometimes he would copy Hallmark cards. They'd be like old dilapidated barns, um, sentimental scenes, and he was also proud of them. He published uh, reproductions of them. So I would, I would repaint these things, usually bigger, and then I would inhabit them and with my own um, uh, protagonists, let's say. So I liked that as a sort of collaborative relationship with Ike. Uh, they vary in paintings, but almost always there's figures in there, there's characters. Sometimes they, um, 
sometimes they're, they're having relationships within the picture, sometimes they're all alone. I mean, it depends which ones we're talking about. When I was in Rome, I made a lot of paintings um, depicting interspecies relationships. So they would be uh, between animals and humans, let's say. Sometimes in situations of predation, sometimes in uh, affectionate ones. Sometimes the animal would, animal, I've made paintings in which the animal was wounded and the human would be like a caregiver. Um, and then in, that, in those cases, oftentimes the animal would be, I thought of the animal as a kind of a split off part of the person, like their own wounded animal self somehow being looked after. Sometimes the animal would be a kind of an unwilling kind of um, uh, participant. Bread to, to protagonist is off, off camera, off uh, painting. Right. Um, well, that was inspired. That painting, uh, it's it's partly a study for a very large painting that had uh, has some um, kitty cats in it. But I saw a painting somewhere. It was like an amateur painting of a product, a household product, a name brand product. I thought that was so interesting and so strange, as though the um, the brand was like a god or like a like a deity or something or like the Jesus or something. and so like, like it was worth painting they just loved that brand so much so this is um, kind of my version of that Jif right. uh, Jif peanut butter nourishing maybe a little fecal when it when but also Jif peanut butter is like paint it's a mat it's this matter that has uh, a certain character and I guess I like the possibility of making an allegory about painting itself, so the bread, the white bread is like the white canvas. The knife with the peanut butter is like the paint going over it, except that it's a little strange. It's painting over here. Can you describe the painting? Okay, that's a brand new painting. That's a brand new painting. It may not even be finished, but it's, it's oriented around a moment in which two women are looking at a display of shoes. So they're there before this retail plenitude and they're, they're looking at the shoes and one of the women is pointing but, but kind of gazing away almost in a sort of distracted uh, rapture. So, but meanwhile the painting is set in this much more sort of uh, broad, turbulent, uh, landscape. The landscape's coming apart. It's it's breaking up into into forces and marks, and so I think I wanted to fold um, what would be a sort of um, a retail display Arcadia into um, a kind of an outdoor one. And so this condition of looking, wanting, um, looking and wanting would somehow be folded into it as a subject. I, I mean, I hope my paintings are playthings, that, that if they have complex or, or sort of mis, um, inscrutable subject matter, they're there as playthings, they're there as possibilities, they're there as, as, as open-ended um, theme clusters. I mean, this, here's one right here, another one. I mean, I don't know if, if talking about paintings is how great this is for radio, but this is a curious one, also yeah. I'm working on. I actually like the idea. Yeah. Oh, why not talk about this is the blind handshake. You cannot see the painting we're talking about. Exactly. Okay, so right here in front. Of, 
And this one, there, you can't even go online to see this one. It's so new. Um, it's called, this one actually has a title. It's called What Steve Saw. Now, I have a friend named Steve Mumford. He's an artist, a very ambitious, substantial, accomplished artist. And he, over a period of a few years, went to Iraq, embedded within the entity known as Artnet, which you know about. So he was an embedded artist, and he made drawings of Iraq. He, he was with soldiers, he went out on the street. It eventually resulted in a book, which I think is very impressive. So I decided I wanted to make a painting that included one of Steve's drawings, that the location of the painting would be based on what he drew in Baghdad. So the whole top part of the painting there, all those wires and, and, and shapes, are a projection of a Steve Mumford drawing. Okay, so that's the location. Then down below, I've actually included an image of Steve himself derived from one of his own paintings where he, he included himself swimming with um, some soldiers. And then down at the very, very bottom, there's a silhouette of me. So I'm, I'm looking at Steve who's looking into a kind of a fantasy world set within this Baghdad thing. Now, you don't have to know any of that, but, this is, but it is a painting about looking and imagining, I think. I guess I like the idea of trying to imagine what other people see. So the idea of making a painting using a friend of mine's drawing yeah. seemed like a really... Did you ask permission? I did ask him permission. He said, fine, great, go for it. Great. I just thought it would be just... It's a thing to do. Yeah, just, a, just, a, just an odd thing to do. It's like working with Ike, Eisenhower paintings. It's like working with ceramic figurines. Right. And maybe it's like writing a review. It's a form of contact. It's a form of relationship that becomes a new thing. Now, talking about relationship, there are a couple of paintings of yours in the book. Um, I'm sorry, I don't remember the titles, but <laughs> of a couple embracing, two different couples embracing. Um, would those autobiographical paintings? Well, they might be. I mean, they're, they're, they're autobiographical in the sense that they're that all... No, it's not no. me. But it is me to the extent that I think that I did those paintings. There are a series of paintings that I call Love Teams, um, which were basically taking the male image from like gay physique magazines, taking the female from Cheesecake, pinup, or maybe student figure paintings, um, kind of beefcake meets cheesecake, and then I would put them together. You, to, you, you to play with the scale also. I played with the scale, and, and basically they were, they were attached. It was a form of collage. And I think um, I liked the sort of, I loved the awkwardness of it. I loved the sort of, this um, heterogeneity. This, I liked that I was trying to make a whole out of something that didn't really fit. And the autobiographical part was that my first marriage was, was about to come apart, and so I was probably quietly, not un unbeknownst to myself, allegorizing. What about the second one? <laughs> what second one? The second painting with the figure, the two figures in Oh yeah, this one. Well then, you know, but then of course you fall in love again and you're with other people and it's, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think they were both probably in this sort of awkward love team um, uh, phase. But the thing is, you know, there's, you, I'd like to think that a painting can register 
longings, stresses, desires, imaginings, anxieties, hopes. So tell me about what you're working on now. I'm looking at a body of work that um, is going into post, the show Postmasters, I understand. So in a way, I mean, I feel like maybe this is this is the theme of this conversation. Um, I'm doing a I'm doing a show at Postmasters in June um, called Defrosted. It is a uh, it's a biography of Walt Disney, and I'm doing it with Adam Sianovich. So this will be a collaborative exhibition in which um, he will be painting uh, a vast panoramic. Um, what is it? A, a, a panoramic wall painting that stretches from Kansas, the, be the beginning of, of uh, Disney's life, to um, Tomorrowland, which is a sort of this anticipatory fantasy um, that Walt had that was part of Disneyland. And, and both on the surface of that, wall painting and also embedded in it uh, will be images that I'm making that um, depict moments in the life of Walt. So essentially this, the, the exhibition will tell the story um, of his life from, from his childhood to his death and beyond. There will be a big sculpture in the back of the dead Walt. Now also included in the show will be a, a curatorial part. We're going to make this large structure in the center based on, um, based on the structure of the Matterhorn from Disneyland. It's an amazing thing. There's a you can see photographs of it online. It looks like Tatlin's uh, monument to the, whatever it is, the Third International. Um, but it also looks like Frank Gehry. Uh, it's very proto-postmodern. But so we're gonna build a small facsimile of it and uh, curate an exhibition of Disney-related themes by other artists. And, and include some works of ours on there. So there'll be a curatorial section, a narrative section, and, um, and then a kind of um, a crypt. So tell me about these particular areas of his life that you particularly Well, one of the themes that, that uh, I picked up that I wanted to kind of emphasize in the, in the exhibition is this image of Walt riding. Um, so that one of his earliest memories is of himself riding uh, on the back of a pig into a, a puddle of mud. And so uh, I, like that, I like that image, somehow the mud as a sort of story about paint and messiness. Um, but then also Walt, the sort of slightly in control rider, maybe it's a little bit like um, a, uh, the Mickey Mouse figure in Sorcerer's Apprentice. Then also his first commission was of his neighbor's horse, Rupert. And so I, in my picture, I've made Rupert into kind of this uh, strange kind of uh, like leather boy, the leather boy of a horse. I like toying with the idea of uh, Walt's sexuality, which is never evident anywhere. He was very buttoned up and um, he turned out to be kind of right wing, but you know, not as, not not particularly evil, not, not a Nazi, but, but not particularly great e either. He testified in the House Un-American Affairs, Un -American Affairs Committee against, uh, against lefty um, Hollywood people. So he's, he's not really a good guy as far as I'm concerned. 
but I don't really want to kind of... Um, demonize. Yeah, I don't want to demonize him either. So we're just kind of telling this slightly skewed story. Then another moment in his life is uh, his, his passion for polo. Now, during the, 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 the studio becomes very successful. He makes all of these animations, but he's becoming increasingly alienated from it. It has its own life. And then there's a terrible strike also. Very traumatic for him, and also turned him much more ferociously to the right, yeah. but also alienated him from the studio, and so he threw himself into his hobbies with a little more um, gusto than he would have. But at one point, uh, there's an accident on the polo field, and this other guy dies. And so he never plays polo again, but he still has this passion for hobbies, and so he takes up, um, he really throws himself into model trains. Now, model trains, in, in my story, and I think this is you know, derived from Neil Gabler's biography, um, model trains is the road to theme parks. And it's interesting to think about uh, the spectator. You know, in, the, in, the, in a movie theater, the spectator stays still, and the image moves in front of them. But uh, in a theme park or on a ride, it's the spectator that moves. And so it's an interesting sort of transition and I think he loved the, the technology of it and the gadgetry. Now, this is a completely non secular question. <laughs> um, you worked on this book and all you were in Rome for the wrong prize. Is that right? Can you tell us a little about how, how your experience in Rome affected uh, your? Decisions to write the book or work on the book. Well, the book. The director of Periscope is a woman named Gloria Curry, and she had been the editor of Penn State Press, which were doing very staid traditional art history books. And she became frustrated with that and decided she wanted to do her own wanted to do her own thing. She wanted to give writers on architecture and art um, a chance to go outside the, um, uh, the prescribed um, character of books. And so she had been, I met her glancingly in the summer of 94 while I was teaching at um, Yale's summer program in Norfolk, Connecticut. Uh, so she was aware of me and she had been reading, I guess, my, my writing, my, what I wrote for uh, art issues and other occasional things. And so she called me up one day out of the blue, a couple years ago, saying, I, I would love to do a book with you. Because she knew I was an artist also, knew I wrote, and, and this was a kind of an unusual thing that, um, that she, I think she, in principle, wanted to try. And she was the one who said, well, let's think about graphic novels. Let's think about lots of images, maybe cheap printing. And so I was very thrilled and began the process of thinking about it. No, that went away. The cheap printing went away. But it's not expensive printing. This is, this is printed in China. It's, a, it's an inexpensive book. It's not a coffee table book. Uh, we tried to keep the size down. We tried to keep the paper thin. But you know, printing costs have have finally, finally gone down. 
So basically what I did was I gathered all of the archive, printed it out, took scissors to it, taped it, chopped it up, and laid it out on a floor. Threw, threw all the texts into piles, different theme piles, shuffled those piles, reshuffled them, laid it out on a floor, just like I was making a painting. And um, when I went to Rome, I took that pile and did the whole thing again. When I was uh, proposing a project for Rome, uh, I folded the book in as an idea. These, the, the relationship I wanted my studio practice to establish with the works and archive of, of, of Rome. At first, Ro Roman portraiture, then later on, kind of interspecies uh, subjects of like gladiators or Christian martyrs or just big cats eating, um, eating deer that are depicted all over the place. How was it for you? Oh, the, oh, the Academy is wonderful. It's a, great, it's a great experience. Everybody should have an opportunity to go live um, in a great palazzo with, uh, with lots of other scholars and artists and architects and composers and and to be encouraged to go out into the city and learn and to explore and to come back and, uh, and, and talk about it. I feel like I had this terrific remedial education just attending the lectures by the other fellows, medievalists, classicists, learning about architecture. Sure, there's a great tradition. Right. I think it's the mecca for architects because there's just so many forms, history piled on top of itself. Robert Venturi wrote Complexity and Contradiction there at the Academy. Colin Rowe, there's, um, ended up going on a couple Colin Rowe tours, like this was Colin's favorite coffee place. And this, this street corner, if you look down there, he loved this view and I'd always talk about that and go into his favorite church, this sort of thing. I do have a show, a solo show in Atlanta at Solomon Projects um, in June, June 3rd. Yeah, June 3rd in Atlanta. So that's, I just shipped that out and um, I'm very excited about that. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure, Irit. It's great seeing you.